Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is June the 3rd, 2014. This is episode 1359 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, I've got an interesting one for you today. Kind of a throwback. Enough of a throwback. We're actually going to talk about the grasshopper and the ant today. Uh, we're going to talk about another one of Aesop's fables, the tortoise and the hare. And we're going to talk about overlooked preps. And we're going to talk about the way that a lot of the things we talk about every day that seem like the boring stuff pay off for people in this audience every day. And we're going to go through my list of uh, what I think are the most overlooked preps in America today by the average person and by preppers alike. Before we do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one today, BulkAmmo.com. Hey, I'll tell you what, ammo's kind of a flashy prep, but it's a good one. Um, it's a good one just from an economic standpoint. Every once in a while, the gun grabbers make a lot of noise, and sometimes they're serious and sometimes they're making noise, but what happens is the uh, the buyers go crazy. And two things happen. The price of guns goes up, and the availability and price of ammo goes up and down, conversely. The availability goes down, and the price goes through the roof. Right now, it's still tough to find 22 long rifle. You can get some of it to at bulk ammo, and most of the other stuff's back in stock. And back to pre-crisis pricing. Get it now while you can. BulkAmmo.com. Next up today, ready-made resources. Everything you need for your prepping from the tactical to the practical and everything in the between. The guns, the gardens, you got it. You can, if you name it, they've got it. Ready-made resources. The company that does what it says and says what it does. All the resources you need. Ready-made, ready to go. Point, click and buy on their website. Check them out today at ReadyMadeResources.com. Um, Let's go ahead and uh, shoot right into the year that was the episode today, because I've got an interesting one for you today, because um, it's going to tie in with our lesson in a way, and it's a good lesson for preppers in general and for people in general. The year is 1359, because the episode's 1359, this segment, of course, is provided at tspwiki.com by the awesome Alex Shrugged who does all of our history segments for us at TSP Wiki. TSP Wiki is the Survival Wiki, the Preparedness Wiki, the Sustainable Life Wiki. It's our wiki. It's the Community Wiki of the Survival Podcast. You're welcome to come on by and learn from the vast and ever-growing encyclopedia of sustainable and preparedness knowledge or to become a contributor and help make it even better. We even have training for you there. But again, the year is 1359, and we have what we call the Treaty of London. I call it the treaty that wasn't because it didn't happen. Um, this I'm quite familiar with this, and uh, it's nice that every once in a while when Alex does something, I actually know about it. Because uh, I'll tell you what, Alex is the he a hell of a history buff, but I know all about this one. With France ravaged by rebellion, war, and wandering bands of brigands. Remember what a brigand is? Do you remember that? A brigand is like a brigade of soldiers who were cut loose and not paid anymore. That says, well, the hell with it. We're just going to go do something with our time. Like, beat people up for money, hired by some thugs. Or, if nobody wants to hire us, we'll just beat people up and take what they have for ourselves. Right? So, the brigands. 
Uh, King John the Good has agreed to give, of France, right, has agreed to give King Edward III of England half of France in the Treaty of London. So, like, it'd be like a, if we went to war with Canada and we lost. And we're just like, yeah, you can have, like, uh, the whole northern United States. That's, that's what the agreement here was. We just give you half of France, right? Okay, so so the king of, of France has agreed to give the king of England half of France in the Treaty of London. However, King John is under duress as a hostage. So when the king of France made this deal, it wasn't like he was uh, meeting at a, a, a table of equals. He was a hostage. So he can't just do that. right? So he, there's other people running France while he's gone. And they're like, yeah, but uh, no, right? So his agreement must be ratified. When the treaty reaches France, King John's son, Charles the Wise, is less than willing. He gathers the nobles as they read the treaty. They realize no country could ever agree to such a thing. It's a veiled declaration of war. Upon rejection of the treaty, King Edward launches yet another attack on France. It is poorly planned, but like jumping off a cliff, once you, cliff, once you begin, you're committed King Edward fully expects the French will surrender when they see him coming. Instead, they refuse to join battle, causing King Edward's forces to get bogged down in lengthy sieges as winter closes in around them. My take by Alex Shrugged, who puts these together for us, the French decision to avoid battle is due more to economics than anything else. France can no longer afford to field an army at a distance. Armies in the Middle Ages are dependent on foraging for their own food. That means either taking food from local farmers in exchange for receipt, or more likely the army takes what it wants, kills anyone who objects. But the peasants are tapped out, and the king's forces are slowed because the horses are dropping from dropping dead from lack of food. The reason they need enough grass to sustain them. So King Edward turns south to pillage Burgundy until next March. Um, I have a bunch of lessons for you in this one, guys. My take by Jack Spirico. Number one. When we worry about the hordes of zombie apocalypses and motorcycle gangs running up and down the road, stealing from everybody during the zombie apocalypse, this is more like what would really happen. They're starving too. It's not realistic. It makes good movies, but it's not realistic at all. The next one, though, is many times the best way to win a fight is to avoid the fight. You know the old Karate Kid thing? Danielson, best way to block a punch is a no-be there, right? Okay, well, best way to win fight is to not be in the fight. It's to not have the fight in the first place. Because many times your enemy can wear himself out trying to get you to fight. And this can be done in legal battles through deferences and things like that. This can be done in actual physical fights. This can be done in actual wars. It's a lot harder in war today than it was at this time or even during, let's say, the World War periods of World War I and World War II because our modern warfare machines move so much faster that they can engage the enemy. But if you think about it, we've played hell in Afghanistan not with engaging the Taliban but with chasing the Taliban. We lost the Vietnam conflict, whether we want to admit that or not, because if you look at Vietnam today, there's one country, and the people running it are the people we were fighting against. That's how you know you lose a war. doesn't matter how many battles you win within it. We lost that war more because that enemy knew how to run away than how to fight, not that they didn't know how to fight. Running away sometimes is the key to winning, and some of the greatest victories and the most one-sided you know, or the most lopsided victories, where the world itself cannot believe 
that you lost and the other guy won is because the other guy knew how to run away. That would include the American Revolutionary War. But that'll be a story for, oh, episode 1780, what was it, 1782? Around there, we'll really hear about that, something like that. Anyway, we'll leave that for the future, but think about that today when we talk about the tortoise and the hare. With that, before I get into the main topic of today's show, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. To do that, you get exclusive content available only to members and help support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty and prior service, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. All of you qualify for a discount to thank you for your service to our country at home and or abroad. Email me before you join. Send the email to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Put service discount in the subject line, and I will tell you how to get a great deal on an already great deal with the MSB. Those of you who are not MSB yet, please consider joining I will give you discounts to stuff you're probably buying anyway and more than pay for the cost of your membership if you're buying stuff in this lifestyle of preparedness uh, on, a, you know, on an ongoing basis. I'll give you that. And if you just think the show's worth a couple dimes an episode, consider being MSB just to support the show. With that, let's get into the main topic. So what I wanted to start out today and what kind of precipitated this show is I got two emails today. And uh, they, were, uh, they, were, they were both... Emails I was very happy to read. Uh, unlike a lot of emails I get, especially about news, modern events, the ass clowns in Washington, tyranny, you know, spying on the American people, spying on our allies, all the wonderful things the people running this country are doing, specifically the people running this country that are actually running this country, the ones with the strings attached to the puppets in D.C., you know, the plutocracy and the corporatocracy. I, I get tired of those, but every once in a while I get emails like these, and they make me very happy when I get them, even when they're about things that are maybe not the best. It's more the outcome rather than the occurrence. So here's one I got from a guy we'll just call Paul. He says, I almost e emailed you yesterday at 2.30 to tell you I thought a meeting at 3 was for my layoff, but I didn't want to spam you in case I wasn't correct. I don't think that would be spam, but okay, you didn't want to bother me. Uh, that bad feeling was right. After having this job for eight years and going through a Google acquisition one and a half years ago, the new startup that spun off of the old company was finally running out of money and laying people off several times over the last year. One year ago, they got rid of vacation time and said to take a vacation whenever you needed, so I knew that was a bad sign. I had saved up 18 days as a buffer in case I got laid off, but they had a cure for people like me that did that. My manager that was let go had 28 days he lost. You might want to check into that one there, dude, because I don't think that's legal. I don't think it's legal that when you terminate a person's employment, if they have vacation days, you fail to pay them for it. I don't believe that's legal. Check into that if they're doing that to you. I'm writing to thank you for opening my eyes back in early 2010 when I started listening and later became an MSB member. A couple of years before that, I stupidly had over $20,000 in credit card debt and then had to buy a car for this new job for my commute one and a half hours one way. The terrible commute turned out to be a gift when I found your podcast and tuned in every day. From 2010 on, I worked as hard as I could to first save up an emergency fund, then hit the credit cards and car payment hard. Uh, for my computer science degree, thankfully, I had a partial scholarship, and I paid the rest as I went, so no college debt. Today, I have no credit card debt, no car payment, money in the bank is a buffer, mortgage paid slightly in advance, and everything I bought over the last four years 
uh, has either been related to food storage, gardening, and a few other categories of assets. My wife even has a better job than I had, so that's extremely helpful. Hopefully, this transition will be short, but the freedom from the change of debt uh, have made this so much easier, and I want to thank Uncle Jack personally for kicking my ass when I needed it. I'll probably look for another job in the tech industry for a quicker salary, but my real passion has been permaculture. I graduated Jeff Lawton's first online PDC that you had talked so much about last fall, and I would have been one of the first signed up, and I and I would have been one of the first signed up to be a Permaethos founder, but I happened to be in Canada with no Wi-Fi at the time and didn't know what what time on that Friday it was going to be for registration, so I missed the chance. Hope one day to start a permaculture business in my area and in the future maybe see you at a Voices conference or even at one of the events you put on. Thank you so much for a great life lesson and looking forward uh, to more from the Survival Podcast and Perma Ethos, Paul. Awesome. See, that is what I've been saying since the first month that I was on the air. That when you lose a job, it is a disaster for you, but it doesn't have to be. That the reason that Hollywood makes all these disaster movies so sensational is if they actually showed people that were actually prepared for real disasters that really happen, including big ones, much bigger than a job loss. But if they actually showed the prepared people prepared for real disasters that really happen, not asteroids that hit the Earth, because if that happens, we're probably all dead anyway. Not made up crap, but real stuff that really happens, it would be boring. Because it would just be the story of how people went on and did whatever they had to do anyway and didn't really care. That's what's happening here. Let me share another story with you. This is uh, another story from a listener. Uh, Jack, my girlfriend and I met you last year um, at a bar after an expo. Um, along with my girlfriend, we ended up closing the place down. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here to avoid giving away any particular information. We're from Nebraska. Anyway, I wanted to thank you for coming to that expo for the podcast. I've been listening for a couple of years, and I had been telling my dad stuff I heard. I didn't think he put much thought into what I said, as you call it, powdered bunt syndrome. And that I've taken from Dave Ramsey, folks. It's, it's why your parents don't listen to you. Once you've powdered somebody's butt as a baby, you generally don't want to take advice about life and money from them. And I agree with Dave on that. We buried my dad two weeks before the expo. I was a bit lost, but I knew I definitely wanted to go to the expo. It was great meeting everyone there and gave me a new drive and, 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 and to, to live life with a purpose. Jack, my dad, was listening to me after all. In the months after he died, my mom started finding money around the house and silver and some coins He had surprised us with a larger life insurance policy than we thought. I guess the lesson is when you think your prepping ideas make you sound crazy, you might be surprised who is listening. Thanks for the hard work, Brad. Wow. They see, these two stories, and, and honest to God, this is the kind of thing I hear at least one story like this a day on average. If I don't hear one on one day, I get three the next day. This kind of stuff happens all the time in our audience. Because people have taken to heart the message of practical preparedness versus extreme preparedness versus flashy preparedness versus doomsday bunkers and all this other crap. And I actually think some of the more extreme prepping is a good idea for some of the things we might get into. But as the might gets into a bigger might, 
the need to do those things goes down the list. So we start out with all the things that are not mites, but whens. You know, when? When are you going to be in a financially tough situation? Well, never. Bullshit. You will. Some point in your life, you will have a financially tough situation. Something that, that, if you were prepared, would do far less damage to your life. It could be a job loss. It could be death of a loved one. It could be some kind of just major catastrophic accident that isn't covered by the insurance you thought you had. Who knows? So that's a when. Then might. Your house might catch on fire. It's not a giant might. It's a sizable might. But your house might catch on fire. You know? Your neighborhood might flood. Well, Jack, I live on top of a mountain. Well, I used to, too. And when I lived on top of a mountain, I didn't put a very, you know, I put a very giant might <laughs> after flooding my house, right? Like, it might. But if it does, then I'm looking for Noah in the ark. So I'm not really worried about that one at all. It didn't mean I wasn't worried about flooding. I just wasn't worried about my house flooding. But I had a smaller might because it was more likely to occur forest fire around my house. Because I lived on a mountain surrounded by forest in the south where we have droughts in the summer. So that might was a much smaller might because it was a maybe. It probably could happen. And it did. Just didn't get to our house. But we had two times forest fires there. They were very, very close because we had one stupid neighbor who didn't understand not to burn shit in the middle of summer during a drought. Okay? So those were more likely to occur. And then... You know, we might have a global plague that has a 50% death rate and spreads rapidly and kills off half the population. But let's be honest, it's a big might. It's a much smaller might that we might in the next 20 years have a global pandemic of some sort that could affect you or the economy or you directly or indirectly or cause quarantines. And the, the, then the more we moderate the effects, the the smaller the might becomes and the more it moves into a when or, an, or, or a maybe. And we prepare first for the whens and then the ifs and then the little mites and then the great big giant mites go last. And when I started this show, the way I tried to convey that was a very reasonable way of looking at things. And something that when I started, when I, you know, I told the story a few times and I was surprised at how it caught on. And I was surprised at how many people told me they had never heard the story before. And then I started realizing I had a pretty big demographic of males uh, in their 20s and early 30s, uh, which put them, you know, anywhere from 20 to 15 years or 25 years behind me, depending on where they were in that. And, well, it was reasonable that maybe they hadn't heard the story. But then I started hearing from people and doing public appearances that were in their 50s and 60s, and had not heard this story that I'm about to tell you. And I realized... The reason I just assumed everybody had heard the story is I grew up in a situation where I had grandparents that had been through the Great Depression and were still living in much the same way they lived during the Depression. These little pockets of America that even you know up into the 80s me generation had not forgotten. They still remembered and they still taught the lessons. And that it wasn't just common knowledge. I thought it was. And I realized that, you know, most people that were 20 years older did hear the story at some point in their lives, and maybe had forgotten about it. But that, just like I was a little kid told the story by grandfather on the front porch, most Americans were told this story in the 80s, the 70s, the 60s, the 50s. This was a, 
a story of virtue in America, basic preparedness. It's the story of the grasshopper and the Anna story I'll tell you now. The, the basic real version, not the Disney version where, you know, all kinds of crazy stuff happened. So the ant and the grasshopper are out in the field, and the ant was working really hard, and the grasshopper was fiddling and farting around and playing and dancing and making music and just having a great old time. And the ant says to the grasshopper, Grasshopper, you better get to work. And the grasshopper says, Ah, you work too hard, man. What are you doing? And the, the ant's like, Me and all my ant buddies, we're storing stuff up for the winter. It's going to get very, very cold and very, very dark. And if you don't have a warm place and some food stored up to eat through the winter, you're going to freeze to death and you're going to die. And the, uh, the grasshopper says, you're crazy. You're nuts. Look at it. It's great out. So the ants diligently go about work and the grasshopper just keeps fiddling and farting around. And, you know, it starts to get a little cooler. Leaves start to turn color a little bit, but there's still plenty of grass, still plenty to eat. And the ants say to the grasshopper, dude, you're, you're running out of time. You're running out of time. The grasshopper says, you're crazy. This is the greatest it's ever been. The nights are cool. I'm not hot anymore. There's still an abundance. Don't worry about me, man. I got this. This is the Jack Spirico version, but it's based on the real Aesop fable. And uh, so then it gets really, really cold one day, and the ants all go into their ant hole and close the hole up and disappear. And the grasshopper looks around, and it starts snowing and icing and freezing. There's nothing to eat, and he's shivering cold, and... He knocks on the ant's mound and says, let me in, but they don't let him in because that's not what they do. They don't even know he's there because, well, they're practically in hibernation at this point, by the way. That's not in the fable, but reality is. But the ants, they've got their stuff, man. They've looked out for each other. They've got their colony. They're good to go. The ants are happy and warm, and the grasshopper dies. So that's the original story. The grasshopper dies. Now... The story was redone in cartoons and things like that, and there was a big Disney movie on it where they got all crazy and the grasshoppers were maniacal and forcing the ants to work for them or something like that. But in the interim, there was this, there was this, you know, Dr. Uh, Dr. Spock's America where we started the teacup generation for our kids. We started lying to our children about what happened to the grasshopper because God forbid the children know the grasshopper dies. I don't know about you, when I was a kid, we used to kill grasshoppers, pull wings off and burn them with uh, magnifying glasses and Feed them to ants. I'm just saying. Now, kids can't be told in a story from Aesop that the grasshopper dies without being traumatically, you know, influenced. So they changed the story to being this way. When the, when the grasshopper knocked on the ant's door, the ant said, okay, come in. And they took care of them and they warmed them up and they fed them. And in the next season, the grasshopper learned his lesson. See, this is a big disservice to our children. First of all, ants eat grasshoppers. Second of all, the grasshoppers die every year. That's what they do. We, we didn't create the story of the grasshopper and the ant so that we could change the grasshopper, but so that we could learn from the grasshopper's behavior how not to be. And we've taken that from our children. Well, today I was thinking about the topic I wanted to cover, and I realized there was another great fable from Aesop called the tortoise and the hare. And I wonder how many people haven't heard this one, or I wonder how teacupized this story has become. So, the tortoise and the hare is, is another great story. So, the basic story of the tortoise and the hare is the, the tortoise and the hare are sitting there one day, and the hare just insults the turtle. And the tortoise says, you're too slow, man. 
you know, and 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 just like starts mocking him, you know, picking on him. And the tortoise says, "I bet I could beat you in a race." And the hare laughs, right? And they get a fox. In the original story, they say, "Well, the fox is like the referee, the umpire, and the fox is going to referee this." And it's like five miles. It's like five ponds or something is the original translation, but it comes out to being like a five mile race for a, a rabbit and a tortoise. And uh, so they they get and they start the race, and all the other animals are watching, and the rabbit just takes off, man, like a like a lightning, like a flash, and gets so far ahead that it decides to make an even bigger mockery and joke of the tortoise and takes a snooze, just sacks out, figures. The turtle comes by and wake him up, and he can get up and you know finish the race backwards or something. Well, the rabbit is so confident and so relaxed and so sure of itself that it just just conks out and sleeps, and the turtle just plods by, and eventually the turtle gets to the end and wins the race, and then all the cheering animals wake up the hare, who can't believe that he lost. Hmm, sounds a little bit like you know not. Losing, winning the fight by not fighting in some ways. But what it really, the lesson, the classic lesson is how dangerous being idle is, being complacent, not working hard, that some people are so gifted, but they put no effort into life, and thus they accomplish so little. And those who are nowhere near as gifted intellectually or uh, with any sort of uh, wealth, or family privilege or anything like that often exceed the gifted simply due to determination and work. For today's show, I would like it to convey to you, though, not only that those who start swiftly often fail because they don't think about and get methodical about getting everything done along the way that's most important, but that often what's flashy and glitzy is not what's practical. Because the, the goal of the race was to get from point A to point B. That was the goal of the race. The secondary goal was to be the first one to do it. But the first goal of the race is to get from the start line to the finish line. You understand that? That's one of the most important things we don't teach our children anymore. We, we, we've, we've stopped teaching them about winning. We, 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 we've, we've taught them that... Winning itself is wrong because somebody must lose, and that's that's bad. We've teacuped them. We don't keep scoring games or anything like that anymore. But see, along with winning comes learning how to lose gracefully and learning that the real race is against yourself so that the, the first goal of any race is to complete it, to finish it. The first goal of any game is to complete it. There's a, a movie called Young Guns. Uh, Emilio Estevez plays uh, Billy the Kid. And he talks about this story that you know his mentor told him, the guy that tried to teach him, make him educated, about a Chinaman who was playing a game of Mahjong, and the world was about to end, and everybody was running around, and, you know, why aren't you getting up? And he said, I'm going to finish the game. There's value in that kind of thinking, that we must finish the game, that that is in itself its own victory. Not everybody gets a sticker, not everybody gets a ribbon, not everybody gets a trophy, but in the end, the person that you compete against most is the internal voice that tells you you can't. And when we look at prepping, that 
funnels in because we start to actually think about all the things that could go wrong and we start to think, well, can I really get this done? And the answer is we, we can't get this done. That prepping is a series of races and more accurately marathons. And it's a series more accurately rather than races because race denotes competing with someone else. And with prepping, you're not really competing with somebody else. Because let me put it this way. If your neighbor's a prepper and he's a crappy prepper, but you get done more things faster, but you don't get enough done for your needs, you're just as screwed as if he didn't do anything at all. And if your neighbor is a really great prepper and you don't do as well as he does, but you do enough for yourself, then you're in good shape. All right? See, prepping actually is not competitive. In fact, prepping, when done properly, is cooperative. See, I think sometimes when I, I talk about these things with our kids and not teaching them about trying harder, trying to win, accepting that some people win and some people lose at things, and that the goal is to win, that people think that that's competition to the, what's the word I'm looking for? It's competition to the exclusion of cooperation. And nothing could be further from the truth. In those basketball games where you don't keep score, there's teams, not individuals. In the football games that parents are trying to ban now because football's dangerous. Duh. Um, really? I mean, you don't have something better to do with your time than try to ban a sport that's been played for over 100 years. Great. Anyway, you know, football, there's a team. It's cooperation. Even in a sport like distance running, There's a spirit of cooperation amongst runners, even in the top elite pack that ends up way ahead of the rest of the pack. Because there's always this clump of runners at the front of the marathon. You ever notice that? And they actually draft behind each other. There's actually a cooperation right up until the final push at the end. So there's cooperation within competition. Prepping done right begats cooperation, not competition. But with all of that said today, I want to talk about the things that lead to stories like the ones we heard at the beginning, not the fables, but the true stories from two listeners. And that leads me to what I call the most overlooked preps, the preps that I think a lot of people think of as boring, and that's not prepping, and that's not preparedness, and that's not survivalism. And I, I want to start again here with going back to something I've taught you guys before, that survivalist is not just misconstrued in the media. The, they, don't, they don't even understand what the word means because they don't understand vocabulary and basic word meaning anymore. So survivalist is made of two components. There's two parts to the word. Survival and ist. So let's start out with ist. Okay? Ist is a suffix. It's basic English, right? The suffix comes, it is appended to the end of a word to denote additional meaning. And the additional meaning is one who specializes in. An ist is one who specializes in. A herpetologist specializes in what? Reptiles. A meteorologist specializes in weather, meteorological phenomenon. Right? A sur to survive means to continue to exist. So a survivalist is a person who specializes in continuing to exist. So there's, there's nothing about that word that should be negative at all. I think that most of us would like to continue to exist, please. So simply 
specializing in making sure that your life can continue makes you a survivalist. And in, in our world, life does not just mean respiration and circulation. It means having a job, having money, having friends, having food beyond gruel, being warm when we need to be and cool when we'd like to be, having a life, not just living. Okay, So a modern survivalist is one who specializes in being able to continue to exist in a modern life. That's why I created the term modern survivalist. And I, I, I did create that term for those that are new to this show. Um, when I started this show, I came up with that idea and said somebody had to come up with this before. And I ran a Google search, quotation marks, modern survivalist, and quotation marks. And at that time in 2008, not a single result appeared for modern survivalist. Not a single one. So I'm pretty sure I did invent that term. But that's what it was all about. Someone who specializes in the ability to continue to live a modern lifestyle in spite of challenges and problems and disasters. And, and that to me is the most rational, reasonable, and dare I say adult mature way to live in society. See, I think the problem that we have today is that we are surrounded by adult children. This is why there are 40-year-olds who are sitting in their basements playing Nintendo or Sega or whatever the hell it is people play today. When I was a kid, we played Atari. I don't know what you play today because I don't do it anymore because I'm in my 40s and I have a life and a family. This is part of why we have these things going on. But what is adult behavior? What does it mean to be responsible? Well, we, we've replaced all of the things that actually used to mean responsibility and maturity with simply if the person has a job, pays their own way, and if they have kids, their kids aren't in, in, you know, in the street or in prison, then they're mature. They're doing okay. When... Our parents and grandparents held their contemporaries to a much higher standard than that. A much higher standard of what being mature was and being responsible was. And they, they tried to instill that ethic, and it was just slowly slaughtered from the post-war era of the 1950s all the way through the 1990s, and we've gone plumb mental in the 2000s, in the millennium. And that's why the things I'm talking about today actually have to be told to people anymore. So let's start out with the first one. Documentation. Documentation kit, I think, is probably the most overlooked preparedness item in America today, including among preppers. A documentation kit is just simply a book, a printed out folder that has in it the contact information of every single person that you could ever want to get a hold of in a disaster. Family, friends, service providers, hotels, you know, 50 and 100 mile away hotels. So that when there's an evacuation order and you have to go, instead of saying, I can't find a place, you've already booked a place. So you know who, where, when, and how to get there. It has the routes of how you would leave if you had to leave. And there's a copy in your home and in every vehicle you own. And I don't think it's out of line that once kids are at a certain age, that there's a folder that lives in maybe their locker at school that's a copy of this information. 
maybe a few things are not in there because you also want financial information and things like that. You can encrypt your financial information with one or two off number number sequencing. Um, most bank account numbers, if you add a one to the beginning, a zero to the end, they look like a phone number. And you could change the numbers by making them all one higher, one lower, two higher, two lower, three higher, three lower, whatever you want. Just be consistent with it. And that way you'd even have that information. And if somebody found it, there'd be nothing they can do with it. And you think, well, this is, doesn't sound like preparedness. But how many times have you had a person that maybe either phone died or they locked their phone in their car or something and you say, here's the phone, call whoever you need. And they go, I don't know their number, it's in my phone. I guess if it was locked in your car, you couldn't get to it either, but you get my point. We don't have this information anywhere except in these digital devices today. And that's not bad that the information's in there. The, the bad part is that it's only in there. So basic documentation, and this should be done on a computer so that anytime you change it, you can print out the updated pages and change them all every place that, that documentation package exists. And here's why. When your 16-year-old daughter is freaking out because she has the car and she's across town and all of a sudden there's some kind of major alert and there has to be an evacuation and everybody needs to meet together and it makes no sense at all for her to come back to the house first and she's crying and screaming and doesn't know what to do and you say, turn to page 7, see where you are, you're right there. I'll meet you right at this point where the big A is. All you have to do is drive down that road. There's a store there. It's called XYZ. Pull over in the parking lot and wait for me there, and I will meet you there. All of a sudden, the panic goes away. I can give you a hundred other instances of how that is a real solution in a major disaster, not just a minor one. Now let's talk about another one that takes major disasters and makes them into minor disasters. Insurance. Insurance is a highly overlooked prep that people don't even consider survivalism or even modern survivalism. They say, well, that's not survivalism. We need MREs, right? We need bullets, band-aids, guns, two-way radios, and hand gear, and uh, giant towers so that we can talk to Europe when the zombies come and uh, you know fight the, the third revolution of America or whatever. Right? You know, it's just not the case. Like I said, your house could catch on fire. That's why we have fire insurance for our homes. Somebody could break into your home. Well, Jack, see, all of my most valuable things are secured. If you broke into my home, you wouldn't get much. It wouldn't get much at all. I've got a drop safe. I got this. I got that. You know, you just wouldn't get much. I mean, you might take a TV or a VCR. What? What about VCR? A DVD player, right? Or a, a DVR is what I was trying to say, or stuff like that. But the reality is, you know, there's only so much small stuff that's actually worth money that somebody can carry. So it, it, I, I'm not. I, you know, I keep the door locked and I have security measures, but I'm not that worried about what they would get. Do you know what criminals often do when they break into a home and realize they're not going to get anything valuable? They destroy shit. Yeah, it's shocking, but the people that would break in and steal your valuable stuff will often do things like smash your mirrors, turn your beds over, take a knife and cut them apart, bust out all your windows, smash your television. Yeah, do twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars worth of damage in a home. Why? Because they get the rocks off doing it. Might want to have insurance for that. Get in a car wreck. It's not really your fault, but the law says it's your fault. Somebody sues you. You know, most places you have to have basic insurance anyway, but talk to your insurance agent because there's probably holes in it. There's a flood. Your house is flooded. Hey, I got insurance. Did you have flood insurance? Uh, see. Running a business, no insurance in your business. You're walking lawsuit. 
So insurance. I'll leave it at that. Basic savings. I, I've been having an exchange with a guy on the blog because of my comments on 401ks recently. I can't imagine why anybody wouldn't do a 401k is what he says because employers all do dollar for dollar matches and that's a 100% return right there and yada, yada, yada. And uh, you know, I have all my reasons that I'm like, you know, you don't just throw money in a 401k. It's not like you never use a 401k, but you need to think about it first. But what I just said to him before I started recording this show was, you know, my guess by how much you're parroting the, well, I guess what you would call the, the normal line of thinking. It's almost like the, the, the words that he's using are the words that are used by every useless idiot that they put on TV to tell you about your retirement. You know, morons like Susie Orman. They, they're almost verbatim what they say in the big meeting where they bring everybody in the break room and they bring the guy in to talk about the new 401k changes, the financial liar. Yes, the financial liar, not advisor, that they bring in from you know American Express or Edward Jones or whatever to tell you about how you can retire when you're 71 or something like that. Um, it's just line, the party line, so to speak. That I bet with that line of thinking, you don't have 90 days of your income in just plain, ordinary savings. And the reality is, if you're actually concerned about financial preparedness, before you're putting a dollar into a 401k or an IRA or any tax-deferred place where your money is actually sequestered and held with conditions of removal, that you absolutely should have a 90-day emergency fund. Basic savings. Money you can just get. Money you can just access. Because that's the buffer you need so that when you get a meeting like the one I just told you about at the beginning of the show, you can go, well, let's see, I'll file for unemployment because I've been paying for that my whole career as part of insurances and cost of my income. So that's basically an insurance run by the state. So I'm going to use that insurance. That's going to replace part of my income. And even if I didn't have that, basically I could live the way I've been living for at least 90 days. But since I've always been saving some of my money, that would mean I could live longer. And if I cut some things and do some other things creatively, I can probably go six months to a year and be just fine. So now I can go find a new opportunity for myself without feeling like the world is ending. But that's because you have the basic savings to buffer the insurance that's provided by the condition of your employment. Um, you have an, something go wrong with your home. Uh, there's damage to your roof. The damage to your roof is eh, $2,000. Your insurance company has you on a $1,000 deductible. You have two choices. You can either come up with a thousand bucks, get the other money from the insurance company, get your roof fixed, file a claim. When your insurance may very well go up from that, may not, but you, you know, it probably won't. But if there's another claim that might have been a bigger claim, the two together will push your rates up for sure. So since this one's not that much money, you might want to just take two thousand dollars, fix the roof, and not file that claim. It all depends. You got to look at your situation as a whole, but. You're screwed either way if you don't have a thousand bucks, because now you're whipping out Amex or Visa or Mastercard and going into debt to cover a deductible because your insurance didn't cover what you needed and you ain't got no money. What if it's a five thousand dollar problem or a ten thousand dollar problem? So emergency funds are not just for job losses; they're for unforeseen expenditures. And and I'd rather have for most people in their lives 
an unforeseen expenditure, a big medical bill that's not covered by their insurance, a big deductible, but you know, whatever. And I'd rather see that money go to that than be used for a job loss. It's actually a much worse problem with the job loss because if I have this emergency for five grand and I pull the five thousand dollar emergency and pay it, well then I just divert money that was going into other places for savings or investment into the emergency fund until it's topped off again and then I go back to what I'm doing. It's kinda like filling up a gas tank. It's much less disruptive. It's almost boring except you're pissed off because your money's gone. But that's because you're prepared. That's a basic preparedness. Um, basic food storage. I think even people that are preppers that have big buckets full of food and stuff stored away don't have a deep pantry many times. You know, I've been to the homes of people who listen to the show, they're preppers, and they take me upstairs and they show me all kinds of stuff in their attic and in their cellar or whatever, and they got, man, you could go there, and if you just wanted to survive, you could survive for a year or two. It's great. And then they're like, yeah, man, one time on YouTube, I saw you cooking, and you made this thing. And uh, I'm like, well, we could make that. And they're like, oh, I'll have this and this and this. It's like, this is all regular stuff, guys. How can you have a 1,000 pounds of wheat berries, you know, and you don't have a, 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 a thing of rosemary or some sort of, uh, you know, something you could use for cream in, in a cooking a recipe or something, you know, or whatever it is that you normally would eat, you know. This is a basic, basic thing. And when I think back, almost all of this stuff, I would say except the economic stuff, because my, my grandparents were terrible with understanding money beyond saving it, right? They just, their way of saving money was whatever you don't spend sits in the bank. That's it. And if there got to be too much in the bank, there was a shoebox under the bed. Seriously, that's my grandmother because she went through the Great Depression and the bank's being closed. Okay, so they had no, no head for investing money. They always saw themselves as poor. So they got all the other stuff right except the money stuff. And it was because they always saw money as scarce, which maybe is better than seeing money as growing on trees. Okay, but... A lot of these things, I can look at my grandparents and see exactly how we used to live and how we should be living. When I think about my grandmother's pantry, there were always rows of cans or usually jars because she did most of her own canning. And then down in the cellar, there were rows of jars. And if we got canning done this year and there was still some stuff left over for last year, just like a grocery store, the stuff that was in the back came out and the new stuff went in the back and then that was replaced in the front. So you were always taking the oldest stuff first so that it spent the least amount of time down there. And bags of onions and garlic and stuff hanging down in the, in the uh, cellar. And, you know, uh, ba we'd make our own bacon and it would hang in, in the cellar, just hanging there. And there was always food. There was never a time where... I, don't, I can't remember, even by the time I was old enough to get on a bike and, and ride down to the grocery store or get in the car when I was a little bit older and go do it, where my grandmother ever said, I need this, this, or this so I can cook today. It was just irrelevant. Like, if there was something she really didn't have, there was so many other options, she just didn't do that one that day and put that on the list. So when I say basic food storage, I'm not even talking about, like, what people think of as prepper food storage. I'm just talking about... Basic things like copy canning, like I need a can of this, so I'm going to buy two. And then when I use one, I'm going to buy two more, now there's three. And then when I use it, I'm going to buy two more, now there's four. And slowly I build the depth of the pantry out. And I just remember being a kid 
in the 70s. And anybody's house that you went to, if you saw them open a cupboard or a pantry, there was always food, and it was always well-organized, and it was always deep. It was just normal. It wasn't even thought of because it was convenient. It helped you save money. It made sure that you could always prepare meals for your family. It, it meant that if somebody came and showed up unexpected, there was more so that you could just make the dinner table a little bit bigger. It was just normal, and it's not the way it is anymore. So basic food storage. Reading and learning about anything valuable. I think that in our society today, not enough time is spent learning. Self-directed education. And I don't care about what. I don't care if it's like hardcore wilderness survival skills, friction fire building, or it's learning about history or science or cosmology. I don't care what it is as long as it's activating the brain at a higher level. As long as it's not the Kardashians, Jersey Shore, and I'm, I don't even know who's on the Housewives or some stupid new show. I think it's uh, – uh, I don't think it's a reality show. I think it's a like a nighttime soap opera. Mistresses. I mean, are our minds not capable of getting out of the gutter for 15 freaking seconds? You know, I may use a swear word on occasion because it fits the occasion, but my mind's not in the gutter. This nation's mind is in a gutter. It's in a nasty gutter. And the problem isn't just that it's revolting material or revolting behavior or immoral thought process. That's like, that's all subjective. Because I don't care what you really think as long as you don't hurt anybody with it. The problem is it's a weak, apathetic, uneducated, unevolving mind. That the mind can't evolve in the gutter. The mind can't become creative in the gutter. The mind can't solve problems when it's in the gutter. So when the problem comes, the mind is not is not ready to deal with the situation. And next thing you know, somebody's standing on a rooftop waving for a helicopter that's not coming today. I'm sorry, they didn't get to you yet. Demanding that somebody do something when they were told a week in advance they leave. Like this, this is this is going to happen. The mind was not capable of comprehending this. Because it was weak. Do you understand that? The minds of our people have become weak because we do not exercise them. It's atrophy. That's what it is. It's atrophy. You know, you can have two people that, for all intents and purposes, are identical in physical ability. Two people who look the same, have about the same weight, have about the same physical powers. Um, two people that... You know, you would you would look at it and say they almost look like twins in every way that you can think of. And you can then have both of them eat the same diet, take the same herbs or supplements, everything be the same. But if one sits around on its ass all day long watching TV shows and the other one gets physical exercise, 10 years, the two people will look vastly different. One will have significant atrophy in their muscles. And the other may, if they've been doing things the right way, actually have increased their muscle mass and increased their strength and increased their endurance because they've exercised their body. To think that the mind doesn't work the same way is, well, probably the product of people not thinking. 
right? I mean, for, for people to think that your mind will not deteriorate because it's not challenged, because it's not engaged, is, is the product of, you know, not challenging and engaging your mind, because anybody that does it would understand that that's a big part of the mind staying sharp. So basic learning about anything, I don't care what it is. I don't care if you're reading fiction, as long as it's well-crafted literature that leads the mind through mystery or, or science or history. You know, I'm reading right now, I'm reading Inferno by Dan Brown, which like is his latest book in the, the realm of Da Vinci Code and Angels and Demons and, and the other books like that, and what I'm learning about history. Now, some of the stuff that we've already covered in history segments with Alex, it's awesome. Um, and it engages your mind. And when you actually pick something up that the author planted as a little seed that was supposed to surprise you later and you're right about it, it's cool because the mind is being engaged. The mind is working. So it, it doesn't just have to be academia in the way that we think of it. it. It's learning and it's quality knowledge to the brain, which the Kardashians are not. Okay, And anything in that ilk is not. And get the mind out of the gutter and get it engaged and get it working. Um, the next one is, and this was something that, like, where I grew up, like, like, you, there was something wrong with you if you didn't do this. Talking to neighbors and local leadership. You know, my grandfather knew the mayor of Minersville. They were friends. They talked to each other. Now I realize if you live in Dallas, you're probably not going to be having conversations with the mayor. You know, Minersville was, uh, I don't know what the total population of the town was. But it encompassed kind of the other surrounding areas. And I think a, a graduating class from Minersville High School back then would have about 150 students. Gives you an idea. Not a very big place. And, the, you know, the Minersville High School wasn't just the Minersville proper. It was quite a bit of the Cass Township and stuff around it. So it, it wasn't a big place. But, you know, I guarantee you there is some leadership in your community, in your town, that is accessible. And I'm not talking about politics. I'm just like, know who the hell they are. You know, you know, you might know the sheriff personally, or you might know one or two of the deputies. Because I consider uh, local leadership to be law enforcement and political, right? You know, who's 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 the the, the guys at the fireplace and whatever. I grew up, we knew all of those people, and we certainly knew our neighbors. Preparedness and talking to your neighbors go hand in hand. You don't think if, you're if there's a disaster in your neighborhood, it's going to be beneficial to know the first names of, you know, at least everybody in every house you can physically see? At least to know that? To be able to rely on each other, to work with each other, to have an existing relationship before you need it? So I think that is like, and I think that's one of the biggest holes in the lives of America. It's not just preparedness holes, but holes in general. People don't know their neighbors. They don't have time to know their neighbors. They don't want to know their neighbors. Um, they come home and they're just like, I, I, I just want to be home. And I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want to be bothered. I want to be left alone. I don't want anybody to harass me. I want to go inside my house and I want to have my my beer or my you know after work drink or whatever it is that that does it for me. And, and that's all I want. And I want nothing else except to be left alone right now. And I understand that, but the reality is that. In the past, we dealt with a lot of the negativity by being engaged with our neighbors, by talking to our neighbors, by feeling like we were part of something, by feeling like we were part of a greater community than just within the walls of our homes. That made it all somehow more bearable. We did things together. We were cooperative with each other. And that all just starts with, hey, how you doing today? 
You know, and some of your neighbors may be in that zone you've been in and not really want to reciprocate. But you got to start somewhere. And it's it's easier to say hello than wait for someone else to do it. I'll put it to you that way. It's it's definitely easier to be the one that says hello rather than to wait for someone else to be the one that does it. So, you know, really think about that one because there's few things that cost less and do more for you than actually being engaged with the people that live around you. Making time for family time. Turn off the electronics, turn off the gadgets, turn off the TV. Let me be blunt, turn off the bullshit. And and talk to your kids about their lives. They don't want to talk to you about their lives. Make them do it. Make them do it. And, and you'll find out that once you get past the little crust, the little shield, and break through it, and they start talking to you about it, and you're not judging them or telling them they're wrong or coaching them along and just listening, that they'll actually all, all of a sudden like it. They'll, they won't even realize it. You've tricked them into it. And next thing you know, they're just blah, 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 blah. And, oh, okay, well, yeah, yeah. And, and try this, parents. It's hard. But since you probably wouldn't know about what they're telling you anyway, uh, before you started asking, try keeping your beak shut a bit when they're talking. Don't try to fix everything. Don't try to tell them where they're wrong. Just let them talk about it. Often, if we give people the ability to talk things out amongst someone that's understanding, they'll see their own errors and they'll correct them. And if you wait long enough, they'll ask, and then it's okay to tell them. And if they're telling you something like, I'm thinking about slitting my wrist, then take action. But if they're just talking about the way they're dealing with one of their friends, it's not the way you'd have them do it. But nobody's going to die and nobody's going to get shot. Nobody's going to get hit in the face with a brick. Shut up and just listen. That's what their friends do. That's why they talk to their friends instead of you. Because sooner or later, families end up depending on each other. And I can tell you from personal experience, because my family I can't depend on. There is nothing worse than not having family to depend on. I'm so lucky that I have a family to depend on now. Because I've met my wife, and I'm part of her family. And we've created our own family and extended beyond that. Because the family, the remnant of the family that I grew up with, cannot be depended on. And I, I can tell you that a lot of it wasn't spending enough time. You know, I, you hear me talk a lot about my grandparents. And there's a reason. My grandparents on both sides were more parents to me than my parents. I'm, I'm part of the same generation that many of this Generation X was part of. And the Generation X is the generation that's raised the teacup children. And the teacup children are the generation that are raising the china plates right now. And I have to always remember that I'm lucky that those grandparents were there. And a lot of these things that I don't understand why my contemporaries don't know them are because they had parents just like mine. One that put his work first and one that put herself first. That is very typical of that generation. And it's just the society that we were living in. It was just the way. And folks, don't blame them. Don't blame them. Because the people in charge made it that way. The people in charge di dissected the family unit. You put it back together. You can sit and whine and cry. My mommy didn't do this. My daddy didn't do that. Whatever. I guess the dogs don't like me making that sound. You know, you, there's an old saying that you're cured in therapy when you hate your parents. You know, that's when the therapist says, like, my job's done here. You know, don't blame your parents. Don't blame yourself. Just fix the damn problem. And spending time with family time is important. And the first couple times will be difficult. 
If you're the one that stands up in a family and says, you know what, from now on on Wednesday nights, we're going to have dinner as a family at the table with all the shit off. The phones are going off. They're going in a drawer or something like that. The laptop's going off. The computer's going off. TV's going off. We're going to sit down and we're going to have dinner. And after that, we're going to spend about an hour just talking as a family together. We're going to take a walk somewhere. We're going to do something like that. And you can even put things like we're going to make it a movie night. We're all going to watch a movie together. We're all going to watch the same thing. We're not going to text our friends. And when the movie's over, we're going to talk about it. Everybody's going to go, Ugh, and you just say, you know what, tough. You'd be surprised. By, by, by time two, people will be asking about it, looking forward to it. It's worth doing because your family's worth doing it for. You know, it might not be really easy, but seldom is something easy worth doing. Next one. Learn to be a great cook. You know, if you learn to be a great cook and you try to have a family time and everybody has to sit down and have dinner with their phones off at 5 o'clock on Wednesday. And I know some of you guys, like, you do that every night. Good for you. Keep doing it. Right? But but if you're in a typical American family today where time's in short supply and you actually have to set a day or two a week that you do that with, but if you're going to have badass food, wow, people are going to look forward to it. That's just one thing. And it's going to be easier than going to the restaurant, you know. We're going to have family time at Chili's. It's not really that great. There's people. There's noise. The phones will end up coming out. Text will be going to friends. Learning to be a great cook makes family time possible. But it also does a lot of other things. It saves money. It saves the hell out of money. You know, I, I pride myself in being a great cook. I'm not good with re, with uh, with leftovers. I got to get better about you know dealing with the leftovers, especially now. I think what it is, I had my son, and he always had friends. And I used to cook for so many people, and now I'm cooking for Dorothy and me, you know. And then we had Joe for a while, and Joe's like cooking for like three people, you know. And, and now he's gone, so I'm back to just Dorothy and me. And the dogs are getting leftovers, and I need to get better about using those leftovers. But learning to be a great cook saves money. My grandmother fed three growing boys. In the 40s and 50s, on a coal miner's salary, think about that. And not a coal miner like you see on TV today, you know, with their little hat going down an elevator. I'm talking about a coal miner with a pick and a shovel. Eventually became a carpenter and then became disabled due to injuries from the coal mining. And she fed and raised three boys. And they were well fed. Part was because they grew a lot of their own food, but a lot of it was just that she knew how to cook. She knew how to take a couple dollars in today's money worth of ingredients and feed four people, five people, plus visitors, and everybody be happy about what they ate because she knew how to cook, learn to cook. Basic first aid. Basic first aid. I know everybody wants to take advanced medical training and be an EMT and all and whatever. And, you know, Amy and Bones do a great course on that. And that's great. You can go to that. Or, you know, Patriot Nurse has her training thing and advanced training this and advanced training that. But how many people don't know basic first aid anymore? You know, how to deal with something that's bleeding. How to know, okay, this does not warrant a, a trip to the emergency room. Just that much. Like, okay, this is something we're just going to take care of and we're not going to worry about it. Or this, you know what? That needs a couple stitches. You know, oh, if there's the zombies are marching, we'll get by without it. But, you know, in today's day and age, that probably warrants a tetanus shot and a couple stitches, and that's worth going down and getting done. And that's not. That's just not worth doing it. And then beyond, like, using antiseptics and over-the-counter stuff and things like that, herbal first aid as well. 
using comfrey on wounds or plantain on wounds. I remember my grandfather burning his finger pretty bad one time and wrapping it in plantain leaf and then putting a bandage around it. He didn't even tell me it was a plantain. For all I know, he didn't know what it was called. He knew that plant that had that leaf on it, you put it on a wound and it helped it heal faster. He said, let me show you. This is what you do. You get some of these, you wrap them around it, and you put a Band-Aid over it. And it worked. And he's like, if you get bit by a bee or a wasp or something like that, smash that up and rub it on there and it'll help. And when I did, I did and it did. And like I said, I I learned what that plant was called years later. I never even asked them. You got to think about. You have to think about how ingrained that basic knowledge and skill has to be where not only does the person not even tell you what the name of the plant is, but you don't even ask and you still learn. Think about that. You just know that plant right there is for this. It's pretty amazing. It's what we've lost. So basic first aid, herbal and conventional. I think another thing is that I talk a lot about the you know permaculture and food forest design and how we can change modern agriculture and homesteading and raising your own animals and all this stuff. But just basic planting of perennials. Not even a garden, just perennials. I'm talking about herbs, berries, and a few trees. You know, we had a big garden. We had some chickens. When I was a kid, my grandparents did. But, you know, when I think about all the stuff that was just taken for granted, it was all perennial, and it was all useful. She had these beautiful roses, 18, I know, because every summer I had to go get 18 sunfish and murder them. That was my job. I was paid a quarter of fish. Pretty happy about it. I would have done it for free. But it was my grandmother's way of giving me some pocket money, but having me do something for it. This is how it would work. I would walk. It's a little kid. When I was on summer vacation, it's before we moved there, so I'm like eight. About two miles I would walk up the hill with a fishing pole and a little bag of bread. And there was a little pond up there. And I'd walk all the way up to the pond, pushing a bicycle, because this hill was too steep for me to ride up the hill. So I'd push the bike up the hill. And then at the top, you could ride for like the last half mile. And ride to the thing. And I'd catch a bunch of fish and put them in an onion sack. And that way they stayed fresh until I left. I'd tie a knot in a sack and tie it on the handlebars of the bike and coast down the hill. By the time I got down the hill, they were done fishing, flipping. You know, they were pretty much on their way to being murdered. And then I would get a little hand shovel. And under each rose bush, I would dig a hole on an angle underneath the root system and tuck that little fish in there. And if he wasn't murdered yet, he was about to be, and put the dirt back on him. And then my grandmother would give me a quarter of fish. And that was nitrogen for the rose bushes. It also gave me something to do and got me out of the way for a while while she was doing something else. So that's just a rose bush. But they were old cottage roses. And they had hips on them that were bigger than a large grape. And she made rose hip tea. She made rose jelly. She made medicinal salves with those rose hips. And now I know today that they were higher in vitamin C than an orange And she told me they were good for getting rid of colds. Okay? Now, that is the basic herbal first aid, but it's also planting basic perennials. Instead of planting a knockout rose, you plant a cottage rose, an English rose, a rose of ragusa, a fruiting rose. And it's just as ornamental, it's just as beautiful, and it survives a lot better. But the average American would be better off if they just took a little plot of their yard and just sheet mulched it. 
Throw down some cardboard, throw down some compost, throw down some wood chips, two or three fruit trees, four or five berry bushes, and some herbs. Throw four or five little small sprinklers in there, put them in the ground, leave them there, hook them up, water once a week. That's it. That's the whole thing. When the weeds come, don't worry about it. Eventually it'll grow in, and you just mow in between everything. Plant stuff that grows tall. You won't care. It becomes just like landscaping. When I think about the currant bushes, the walnut trees, the apple trees, all of the stuff that was on this little one-acre place, that's how it all was. I just, you know, when I was a kid, I had to mow the grass. I just mowed around it. We didn't weed it because it was basic perennial stuff that was just growing there because it made sense to do it. So when I when I think about a lot of the you guys that I hear from, they go, "I'm just not that into permaculture like you are, and I don't want to garden, and I don't want to have to deal with weeding and stuff like that." I often just think about the neighborhood, if you want to call it that. It was more like a little village that I grew up in. I don't think village isn't the right word either because it wasn't a downtown area, a borough, a hamlet, whatever, uh, with my grandparents at where. You know, there were most houses had about a half acre to an acre and a half of land, and most people had a little garden. But the, most of the rest of it just looked like any typical, you know, kind of semi-rural area with a big pile of grass, but had clover mixed in with it, and no one would have ever dreamed of paying True Green Chem Lawn to spray the lawn. And there were all these perennial systems built into it that weren't high end or high output or large production they were just simplistic but effective and they created a lot of food for very little work there i'd say almost every property had at least one apple tree on it and they weren't big old juicy red delicious or fuji apples they were common you know seed grown apple core apples they were trees that eventually just kind of ended up there So we can put a better quality tree in than most of these. There were black walnuts. Um, there was, you know, black walnut everywhere. There were, you know, people would have a little garden plot, not really a garden plot, more like a ornamental plot, like people have for landscaping. But instead of, you know, pansies, there'd be a bunch of strawberries in there, and they would just, you know, hey, we get strawberries once a year from this thing. Uh, usually raspberries were very common, and. It wasn't a lot. I'm trying to explain this in a way that'll make it more um, accessible to those of you that don't want to put a lot of work into this. You know, I think of uh, there was this that we used to call her old lady catchmers, uh, and she had this yard. It was probably half of an acre, and her son would come mow it for her. And she didn't have a garden anymore. She was too old. She was one of the old people that my grandmother used to write a name on a bag, and I would take you know, surplus vegetables too, because she couldn't grow a garden anymore. But in her yard, you know, there was this stand and it was rhubarb. And when I'd come over and she'd go, why don't you go cut some rhubarb for me and take some for your grandma? So there was a stand of rhubarb. It's a perennial. It just grew every year and I'd cut out the stalks and bring her some so she could use it. And that, that was that. And it was just there. And then she had another little stand of raspberries, and she'd say, I don't care much for raspberries. They were playing way back when we still had the kids living here, and, and her husband was around, and he liked them, and I don't really like them, so they just stay there, and uh, my son you know, trims them every year, and if you want them, just take them. And there was just a stand of raspberries there. You know, and she had a couple of apple trees out in the back, and it was just, it was just food. It was just there. It was taken for granted because it was designed to be that way. And I think that's a big part of what we're missing from a preparedness as a nation standpoint. It's just that basic concept of 
Why are we putting in fruitless mulberry trees? Oh, because I don't want the bird to poop on the car and stain it with purple uh, uh, mulberries. Well, then put the big, long Pakistan mulberries on there that don't stain, or get white mulberry and, and then have something that's productive. Or plant one in the way back of the yard where it's not going to stain the driveway in the car. You know, why are we putting in fruitless pear trees when we could have pears? That type of thing. So basic perennial planting. The next is the, the, the knowledge of how to preserve food. And, and this doesn't mean being a homesteader. I mean, it's a homesteading skill, no doubt, but just knowing how to can, how to flash freeze, how to dehydrate, makes it possible to go down to the farmer's market and buy 20 pounds of green beans for 60 cents a pound at the end of the season when they're trying to get rid of them. Better quality, fresher than you could ever get from the store. All you got to do is go down there and pick them up. You don't have to grow them. At that price, you probably can't afford to grow them unless you're doing it on a really large scale. But what are you going to do with six, six pounds or 60 pounds of green beans? What are you going to do with them? They don't last that long. Well, you can can them. You can flash freeze them. You can dehydrate them. Um, knowing how to make use of different meats and doing preserved meats and smoked meats. These things all add to your quality of life and save money. And money is something, I want you to see the commonality of money here. So many of these things today either cost very little money or save money. And if your time's occupied with non-cash burning activities, you will have more money. You don't even have to be good with money for that to be the net effect. Okay. Now, if you're already doing all this and you have no money because your income's too low, then you have to address the income outside of the quotient. But I'll explain it to you this way. When I was in the Army and I got sent to Panama, I took up going to the bar almost every night, hanging out with my buddies, chasing girls, listening to music, and drinking beer. It didn't cost a lot of money, but I was a soldier and I didn't make a lot of money. And my savings account didn't grow very much. There was some money there. I was never broke, but it didn't grow very much. And then I got deployed to Honduras for six months. And there wasn't a bar. And there was a little bitty uh, PX trailer. And you could go up there and buy two beers at a time. That was it. And some ramen noodles or something like that to make up for the army chow. And they fed us pretty good with army chow. But pretty much, we worked six days a week. The seventh day, we took off. We just kind of hung around on Sundays and listened to music and talked. And we wrote and we you know wrote letters home. And we read books. And we did have a little TV tent. And we'd go in there and watch TV. And uh, we'd walk around. We lifted weights after hours. I mean, it was just what it was. It was almost like being in jail. It was almost like being in a work prison. Um, it wasn't bad like that, but it was like that. I mean, it was a three-acre camp. It was surrounded with Constantino wire. We weren't allowed to leave unless we were going out to work on the road. We were in the middle of a foreign country, and we worked six days a week, and we lived in a tent. In some ways, that's worse than some minimum security uh, you know, confinement systems as far as living conditions. So it was kind of like being in jail, and I'm not comparing it to jail, but I am, just to kind of give you the, and what I mean by that is you didn't have a lot of choices of what to do with your time, as far as things that were money-burning activities, and since I don't gamble, they can get involved in any of the gambling that went on, and in six months, when I came back to Panama, there was over $6,000 in my savings account, now, I was making about $16,000 a year then, so that was almost all the money I earned in that period of time. And it was because my activity 
was non-money burning. There was no option. Now, I'm not suggesting you go live like that. You know, I'm just saying that all the little things that we do in our modern lives that are trying to heal the holes in our souls and our hearts because we're missing out on the things that really matter like I'm talking about today are generally money-burning activities. Economic stimulus for everybody but you. You know, we were talking about this recessionary uh, pattern that we seem to be entering. Do you know what the people in power say? It's because you don't have enough credit. If the banks would just give you more credit like they used to, and you had more credit cards and more home equity loans, and it was easier to buy a car on credit, if we just open up lending, the economy will fix itself. That is what they really think. These are, these are solutions being proposed by the people that want to take over the government. Right? The Republicans aiming at the White House are using this. Is They're getting ready to use this after the midterms to attack the Obama administration. This is actually their solution. These are the people that you're telling me are the lesser of two evils. Sure, on some things they are, and on some other things they're not. And the reality is I think it's a net wash at the national level. But that's the solution. We just need people to borrow more money so we can fuel the economy with spending and we'll be better off. That's economic stimulus for everybody but you. And these things that I'm talking about, preserving food, planting basic perennials, basic herbal first aid, right? If I'm using that, I don't need the stuff from the grocery store or the pharmacy. Learning to cook, making family time. Family time is inherently non-money burning. If nothing else, you're not burning up your data plan because you've turned the crap off. Talking to your neighbors doesn't cost anything. It's occupying your time while you're not spending money. Okay, When you're teaching your kids hard skills, you're not burning money. I think I skipped that one. So I want to make sure you go back there. We need to be teaching our kids hard skills. I know I skipped that one. I'm going to move it down on the bullet list. I'm so sure of it. Our kids don't know how to do stuff anymore. Right? And I'm not just talking about the teacup concept, right? I'm talking about like just the concept of doing things. Because I'll tell you what happens a lot of times. Even the dads that know how to do stuff, they're trying to get it done. If you, in this day and age, it's not like when my, my dad was you know younger and, and I would occasionally do things with him. My grandfather would show me stuff where like when you, you, you did things instead of calling a guy because the guy knew how to do it, but it was also because in, in, in our, our time past, we had time. We made time, maybe is a better way to look at it. We didn't feel constantly stressed. There wasn't enough hours in a day. So if dad was putting a new water pump on, right, or mom was sewing up some holes and some clothing, they pulled the kids aside and said, let me show you how this works. And since there, there was a lot more multi-generational family activity, there was a lot more of the grandparents with the kids other than when the parents wanted to go out on date night and dumping them off for babysitting and daycare. There was a lot more total interaction. The grandparents really had their time. And they would say, look, this is how you do this. And a kid would learn by watching. And you know what? Kids want to do the stuff that their parents and grandparents do because they want to grow up and be like them. So... It's a natural thing, and if you want to learn something, you're going to. And we, we kids today, by the time they're 16 and driving a car, can't change a tire. You tell me the average 16, 17-year-old girl especially knows how to change a tire. I would say I'm almost being sexist. I, I bet the average 16 and 17-year-old boy with his first driver's license driving around, if the car gets a flat, he doesn't know what to do. No idea. And it might be dangerous. 
Because he might be have enough initiative to try to figure it out. If he doesn't know how to properly use the jack, he could end up crushed. You don't know how to change a tire? By the time I was 16, I could do a valve job. Rebuild a carburetor. Make a carburetor work long enough that we could get to rebuild it. Break down a tire. Balance a tire. Do a front end alignment. I do, and I did not take this, and I didn't have a VOTAC in high school. I learned all it's just from my dad. How to look at a tire and know why it was wearing the wrong way. That's just automotive. I knew how to skin a squirrel. I knew how to clean a chicken. I knew how to skin a deer. I knew where to put a shot on a deer. I knew how to field dress a deer. I knew how to drag a deer out. Now, I'm not saying these are the skills that you need to teach your kids, but how many, how many of our teens today even if they're different skills, can give a list like that of hard skills of any set that they have. You know, configuring a router is great. And there's kids that can configure a router at 16. I think it's awesome. They might have a future in tech. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's not what I call a hard skill. It's not a hard skill. Train how to train a dog. Not how to tell a dog to sit down and somebody else train. How to actually train a dog. How do you deal with training a dog? How do you deal with a dog that's not cooperating with you without beating it? Right? How do you actually get it to want to do what you want to do? You've just learned how to teach. If you can teach a dog to sit and lay down and shake hands without hitting that dog, without making that dog feel intimidated, you can teach a person. It'll be much easier to teach a person than to teach that dog. Kids can't train a dog anymore. How do I identify plants, the basic plants around you? Like I said, I didn't even know what plantain's name was when I was a teenager, but I knew what it did. I knew it could go in a salad. I knew that the seeds had, had protein and the seeds could be harvested. And I have to tell you, I'm really thinking, I, it, going back to that, I don't think I knew what the damn thing was called. I don't think I ever asked. I don't think I ever asked. Knew what dandelion was. I mean, kids don't have hard skills. They just don't. And most of us don't anymore. Even those of us that grew up having them have atrophied in our skill set, just like we've atrophied in our knowledge. We've got to get out and do this stuff. And let me tell you something, parents. You learn best what you teach. If I tell you something, and let's say you're one time likely to, 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 to uh, remember it, okay? If I tell you and show you, your, your, the odds that you'll remember it go up 10. So 10 times greater than the original. Okay? If I, I tell you, I show you, and then I have you do it and guide you through it, it goes up 10 times again. That's, that's 10 to the third power now. Okay? 10 times 10 times 10. If I tell you, I show you, I guide you through it, and then I have you teach me how to do it. Say, so now you show me how to do it. You teach me. Goes up ten more times. Ten to the fourth power. And that last magnitude is greater than the other three. Now think about that. So if you really want to learn, get out there and start teaching. And teach hard skills to your children. Teach hard skills to your spouse. 
You know what? I hear a lot of guys saying stuff like, you know, my wife doesn't want to learn how to shoot guns. What does she like to do? What does she like to do that you think is being a woman's skill that you're not really wanting to learn, but she would actually like to teach you? You know what, honey? I'll let you teach me how to knit if you'll let me teach you how to fire a gun. Because you just might figure out that that knitting skill has other translatable uses that are not knitting socks. And I know I'm being a little stereotypical, but I'm just saying, if you want someone, especially it, with kids, it's easy. Because even when they say they don't really want to learn, intrinsically they do. They want to do whatever their parents does. They want to emulate. But when it comes to dealing with spouses, hey, you want them to learn from you, learn from them. Even if it's not something you would just initially say you want to learn how to do. It's a two-way street. I think another thing that's missing in most American homes today is a basic blackout kit. I know people that own generators that don't have a blackout kit. Did you say bug out kit? No, I said blackout kit. A blackout kit is some flashlights, some candles, some extra batteries, transistor radio with batteries. It's all the stuff that you need when the power goes out to get the, all the other stuff that you're going to use because the power is out. So if the power goes out in the wintertime, and you have a fireplace, and you're on electric heat, even though it's woefully inefficient, it makes a lot of sense to throw some logs in and get the fireplace going. And if the power goes out at 5 o'clock in the evening and the window's open and it's still light outside, that might be one of the first things you do. But if the power goes out at 8 o'clock at night, hmm, you've got an issue, don't you? you got to find all that crap and get everything done. That blackout kit is how you find everything and get everything done. And it makes sense to actually build two of them and put one upstairs and one downstairs if you have a two-story house and you spend any amount of time upstairs. And if you have a large one-story home, maybe one on each side of the house. Having one for the kids, a lot of times these houses today are often built in like a split design where you have like the secondary bedrooms on one half of the house and the primary parents' bedroom and a living area on the other side. And if you're in that situation, it makes a lot of sense to put a blackout kit on each side. Because once your kids are old enough to know how it works, they can go out and do that. I really recommend you consider getting some of the emergency uh, lights, the ones that basically are like a flashlight and a nightlight at the same time. You plug them in, they stay charged, the power goes out, they just come on. A great product for this is made by a company called Mr. Beams. Look that up. They're awesome. Um, they're a great product as well. But just having a basic blackout kit. There's nothing more to it than that. Just how do I be able to make sure I can see everything and get information, and put that all in one place. Now, if you have a Stephen Harris-style battery backup system, all the better, and it makes sense to have that blackout kit on the shelf with your battery backup kit, right? And that makes perfect sense. Because the other thing is I have people say, well, I have a generator, and I don't care. Well, it's 10.30 at night. It's pitch dark. The reason the power went out is it's raining, it's pouring, it's sleeting. I don't know. It sucks out there. you got to go out and deal with all the stuff with a generator. Now, I know some of you are really prepared, more than me, because <laughs> i got to figure out how to put a big enough propane tank in to make this work. You guys have the generators that just, your power goes, you just wait a couple seconds, generator kicks on, standby, everything comes back on. I still think you should have a, a blackout kit. It could fail. I know it's not likely, but it could fail. You, there's always a time where you might need 
to be able to see where you're going in the dark. And it's not even all the time that just the power's out itself. There could be a security issue or something like that. I think it makes a lot, a lot of sense. Like I called it, I carry a Streamlight Stylus Pro flashlight on me just about at all times, a little pen light I keep in my pocket. But hey, sometimes I'm in my boxers in the middle of the night. You know, just having, you know, stuff like that. In fact, we've taken it a step further. When you go to like Tractor Supply, Lowe's, Home Depot, Walmart, these LED flashlights have gotten stupid cheap. Five, six in a pack for ten bucks. And they come with freaking batteries. You can't buy the batteries for the battery and the light. I know they're not great batteries, but they come with the light for God's sakes. I buy a pack of those all the time. I see them, uh, ah, I'm going to throw that up there and buy it. And we've got them in like all the drawers. You got them hanging around different doorknobs through the houses and stuff like that. And they always seem to still end up missing, but you can always find one somewhere whenever you need one. It's very, very convenient to have that. And we also have these lights. I just need to do a video for you on these lights. We've tried a couple different ones, and I found some that I really like now. Instead of just plugging in the wall and you pull the whole plug out, there's like a base that plugs in the wall. Uh, almost like a little receiver for like a wireless phone type of thing, you know. And then this light sits in there like a flashlight. And you can just pick it up right out of the cradle, and you've got a flashlight. And if it's sitting in there and the power goes out, they turn on. I, I really like them. I can't remember who makes them, but I'll do a video for you on them. I think we got them at Costco. But just basic blackout preparedness is something that even some preppers don't have. Um Understanding and knowing, and I kind of covered this already because I talked about it under hard skills, but basic car care, maintenance, and repair knowledge. I mean, taking care of your car, either changing the oil or getting it changed on a regular schedule, changing your belts, changing your hoses, things like that. Avoid the breakdown and having basic repair knowledge. I, I think most people, so I talked about teaching your kids earlier with it. I think most people don't know how to do basic repairs today. And I know that we can say, well, the cars are so advanced and you need a computer science degree and all. But in the end, uh, fixing a flat is the same as it ever was, as long as your car has a spare, right? But do you know, does your car have a spare? We've covered that. Some new cars don't come with a spare now. They come with a roadside assistance card. It's ridiculous. For a flat tire, you got to be kidding me. Do you, do you know if it has a spare? If so, where is it? Do you know where your jack is? Do you know where your lug wrench is? Do you know how to take it all out and get to it, right? A basic air compressor, a plug kit, and yes, a can of fix-a-flat. All of those are useful things to keep in your vehicle. Very, very basic stuff. If you have a truck, you know, get a good nylon tow strap. You might be able to help somebody else or somebody may be able to help you someday. Jumper cables, do you have them? Do you know how they work? I, I know Stephen Harris hates the, the jump packs, like the Power Dome EX. I think they're great, as long as you understand there's limits. Well, it could be dead when you need it. Well, your car could be dead when you need it, and the Power Dome EX may not be. Plus, it's multifunctional. But at least have jumper cables. Great big long set. Don't buy the cheap jumper cables. Because what's going to happen, I'll tell you what's going to happen. You're going to have a battery go dead. You think, oh, my car's got all this space-age stuff and a battery I will know before it... One, your battery's going to die. You're going to do something wrong. The battery's going to die. One, something's going to happen. It's going to die. You're going to be in a parking lot. You're going to find somebody willing to jump you. But your car's going to be surrounded by two other cars, and he can only get so close to your car, and those other two people are not going to be there. And you're going to be standing out there waiting for somebody parked next to you or pushing your vehicle out of the parking place, jamming up the parking lot because you can't reach because you bought the cheap jumper cables. Buy a good set, long-cabled, expensive, heavy-gauge copper jumper cables. 
keep that in your vehicle. This is something like, I remember as a kid, if somebody got a dead battery in their car, and they weren't like a teenager that was broke, like a grown person, and they were looking for someone to give them a jump, if that person said, do you have any jumper cables? Because they didn't, you kind of, usually the answer was, yeah, I got them, I'll take care of it. But the guy kind of, you know, the guy that was helpful would kind of roll his eyes like, dude, why don't you have jumper cables? Who the hell doesn't have jumper cables? Today, I bet you most people don't even know what they are. They don't even know what they're for, let alone how to use them. So basic car maintenance, repair knowledge, and basic car care knowledge. Um, I think that one of the biggest things missing in America today is entrepreneurial spirit. I think that it makes no sense how few people start a business today of some sort. And I don't mean necessarily like I've done, where it's your full-time gig. I just mean a little, small, couple hundred, couple three hundred dollars a week or a month even. The average American, if they could pull in an additional eight hundred dollars a month, would avoid bankruptcy when bankruptcy was going to hit. The average American with that could put a lot of money into savings. They could avoid a lot of debt or they could eliminate a lot of debt. Eight hundred bucks a month is not that hard to make anymore. So I, I, I don't really understand that. Or if you're not going to do that, okay, then get very good. And I'm, I'm fine with you because not everybody's going to do it. I get that. I just don't think there's enough of it. And the reason I, I want more of it is I think that it would give us greater flexibility as a nation and there would be more commerce between equals. If you have people in your neighborhood that are running small businesses and you know about them and you need something they do, as long as they're good, you'll probably go to them before you go to the yellow pages or the internet. If everybody even uses the the, the, the hard copy yellow pages anymore, I don't know. right? But you'll probably go to them first. So that goes back into talking to your neighbors, being involved, having a community. So I think just the very act of people setting up small businesses of some kind would really go a long way toward helping rebuild community in of itself. Plus, if you have people that have a little more when there's a crisis, they're more able to help. So I just think it brings stability. It, it brings opportunities to neighborhoods when you have small businesses. Sooner or later, small businesses, if you have 20 people that start a small business, let's say 15 will still be doing it in two years. That's that's probably about right. If they if they're serious about it, about 15 out of 20 will survive it and decide yes, I want to keep doing this. Of those 15, right, about five it will be very small time, but they'll keep doing it because they like it. It'll be like a hobby that pays for itself plus makes some money. These are people who are going to make a couple to 300 dollars a week, right, and they'll do that for a long, long time, and that does all of its own good thing. Of the 10 left. Five will be people that are serious part-timers. These will be people that will constantly be thinking, do I take this full-time or not? And they're going to make a decision one way or another over time, or they're just going to have a really good, solid secondary income. Five, The five that are left will be people that do what I did. They'll become full-time employees. And those five, two or three of them will end up hiring somebody. Two or three of them will end up hiring at least one employee. Many times a young person in the neighborhood that basically fills the role that we used to call apprentice. Man, if we could just get 10% of America doing that with those ratios, I wouldn't care if it was one that hired somebody. That's a lot of job creation. That's a lot of knowledge spreading. And that's a lot more local commerce and local community building. 
And if you're, if you're not going to do that, then you get really good at money management. You save your money, you pay off your debts, and become a great investor. And that, that investing be your secondary income source. Because that is something that really has opportunity as well for people that can spend the time with it. And I think that no matter who you qualify for as an investment advisor, if you actually become good at investing individually, you'll probably do better for yourself, especially when you're not worth a million dollars yet. So I think that either you're going to be a really great investor and money manager or you're going to run a small business and hire a really good investment advisor. Those, those are the two ways to solve the same thing. And then I think that if you're in business, you're going to do this you know, as a byproduct. Because if you're going to be successful in business, you have to tell people about it. But I think that one of the worst places from a preparedness standpoint for the average American is they don't network and they don't stay marketable. As, as, as talent in any type of industry or business. I don't care if you're a waitress or a waiter. Actually, I think that is one of the places where most waitresses or waiters that do the job for a while, and I know I talked about how some of those jobs will go away, and I think they will, you know, and it's do you want fries with that, but I think actually wait staff in proper restaurants have a long life ahead of them. And as more and more technology takes over those jobs and there's less, The people that are left doing it are going to move into higher and higher end establishments. And let me tell you something. I know a waiter on a first name basis because he was the personal waiter to my business partner, Neil Franklin. He works at Three Forks. This guy makes a very serious six-figure annual income as a waiter. I think many people that spend most of their lives in the service industry could be making very good money and they never work their way into higher-end positions in that service industry where you're waiting on the guy that leaves you a $300 tip on a $700 table. Those jobs do exist. They're competitive. But you can lose a job in a place any day, whether you're a waiter or a computer programmer or a CEO. And all of us should be at all times keeping our options open, your resume updated, even though I think the resume is dying. When I say resume updated, I mean whatever you need to apply for a job. Your LinkedIn profile, I don't care. right? Updated and ready to go and be talking to people about what you know and who you know and try to bring them business and try to, try to, try to inter-network wherever you can, be putting people together because it's the right thing to do, it is helping other people, and it always pays itself back tenfold. It really does. And if you're that person, the second you are available on the market, you're not looking for a job. You're screening offers. And that's true of the waiter to the CEO. If you're good at what you do and you're good at telling people that you're good at what you do in a way that's not snobbish, what's the word I'm looking for? Arrogant. You want to be arrogant in that, but confident. If you're answer, if you are a programmer and you're involved in networking and when someone has a programming problem, you're able to say, Oh, we had that problem. Here's how we solved it. As long as it's not proprietary, you know, patented stuff. And they, Oh, thanks. And they use that and it works. Or I, you know what? I know the guy. I, I, I you know what? You, it sounds to me like you guys are stuck on that one. What you need is a little bit of outside contract help. I know the guy that, that's, Doug, we've used him. He's the guy. Let me get you his number. If you're that guy, 
and you have 20, 30 contacts in your industry like that, and all of a sudden you get laid off or whatever, and you say to your industry, I'm currently exploring other opportunities in, in the field, you have four or five people that want to talk to you now during a recession because I watched it happen to people that were like that. I watched people hit by the 2000, 2008, 2009 recession, go 99 weeks on unemployment and cry they needed more. And I watched other people lose a job and in a week go through and, and, and say, hey, I've got five offers. What do you think I should do? Think about that. In the same industry with the same basic skill sets. Why? One was known and one wasn't. If you want to be a modern survivalist and live in this modern world, you need to stay known and stay marketable. And I think about how oh, we have all this high tech and yet our grandparents knew this. Our grandparents knew this. Our parents knew this. When I would be in town and I would be talking about like something. I remember one day my uncle came home and he was so pissed about the way he was being treated at the plant. And, and I remember the one guy saying, oh, is that Mark you mean? I said, yeah, yeah. He goes, oh, you tell him if he ever is tired of that place to come see me, we could use a guy like him. I don't even know what the guy did. Right? But that was that, like, they just, we'll, we know him. We know he works hard. We want him to come work with us. We, we can always use somebody like that. That still exists. I don't care how shitty the economy is. There is always a place for the best people. And sometimes being the best is not good enough. People need to know you're the best. So make sure that you're networking in your industry. You're talking to other people in industry. You're exploring opportunities in your industry. If a recruiter calls you, don't tell them you're happy with your job. Don't tell them you're happy with the job. You know, I, I had recruiters recruiting me when I didn't want anything to do with going to another job. And something told me to talk to them. And it led to a lot of great opportunities. One in particular, call me with an opportunity and try to sell me on the opportunity. I've talked to people. I know you're making waves in your market, blah, blah, blah. And he tells me about the opportunity. I said, ah, you know, I'm pretty happy where I'm at right now. But uh, I know somebody. I know somebody that might be right for you. So I gave this guy's name. He called that guy. That guy wasn't interested, but he referred him to another guy. And he replaced that guy. And his recruiting fee on that one placement was 20 grand. He was my buddy after that. You don't only know things that could benefit me one day from a standpoint of placing you. You know other people. So he called me back. He tells me all this. I'm like, oh, you placed me? He goes, no, no, he didn't want the job, but he knew this other guy. And he says, I just want to say thank you for that and you know, whatever. And can I stay in touch? Yeah, sure. I gave that guy three placements. And the fourth thing he put in front of me, I went, well, wait a minute. That's interesting to me. And I ended up taking an opportunity from him. So he got four placements, including me. You know, that's a pretty good annual salary and recruiting fees that this guy pulled off of just one contact. I haven't talked to this man a lot, but occasionally we exchange emails and things like that. And I'm not going back into the industry. I'm not going back to have a job. I don't want to do that. But I guarantee you, if I was, He'd go to work for me tomorrow morning and find me something, as long as he's still in that industry. That's staying marketable. Maintain the contact. Stay, stay marketable in your industry. Be a source of information and be a source of contacts. You know, Either build a business or act like your job is your business, one or the other. Pick your one of those two. And I think a lot of times 
the first one, the second one leads to the first one. So if you act like that long enough, you get enough opportunities. Eventually, you get an opportunity to go into business for yourself. So there you go. Now, I want to kind of finish up here today with why this is always the way to win the race. These basics, these fundamentals. Why this is the, the tortoise versus the hare approach. It's just slow, it's steady, it's methodical, and it checks, checks all the boxes on the list of things that need to be done. Why this works, why this wins the race. And it, it wins the race because it is the fundamentals. It's the basics. It is just the formula for being a freaking grown-up. And I'm sorry if that offends anybody that just doesn't think any particular one of these is important at all. But it, is the, it doesn't mean that everybody's going to do all of these things. It means that all of these things are up for consideration. And in, within a community, there should be people good at all of them. And they should be relying on each other. And some are things that everybody should do. If you have property, you should have insurance against that property if it matters to you. you sh if you have dependents on you, you should have insurance against your life. That's something everybody should do. Period. Everybody should save money. If you don't save any money, you are ripe for injury. Financial and otherwise. But not everybody needs to be a great cook. It'd be great at least if one or two people in a family could cook well. Okay? Not everybody needs to be really, really switched on with herbal medicine or anything like that. But everybody should know basic first aid. You should know there's a cut, it's bleeding, put pressure on it. I mean, come on. Do they even teach that in kids in school that anymore? I mean, I remember we had that in school, like in fifth grade. They, they would teach you basic first aid. I think we got our CPR certification if I remember right, when we were in sixth grade in our in our health class, one of the things was first aid and CPR, and we actually had somebody from whatever the certifying body was come in, and we actually did CPR on a, the recessa ante, they called it, and we did it as a team and individually, and we got our certification in sixth grade. We teach kids that anymore? I don't think we do. right? But not everybody needs to have a high-level understanding of any one of these or do all of them. But there are certain ones that everybody should be doing. You know, reading and learning about stuff. There's no excuse for that. You're a lazy-minded human being if you're not learning new things. There's no excuse for it. Um, basic exercise. I didn't have that on the list, but I should. You know, take a walk. Base, everybody should be getting some exercise on a daily basis. And if you're not, you're not prepared for life. You know, I don't know that everybody needs to be planning perennials. But I have to ask you, unless you live in an apartment or a townhome with a tiny yard or something like that, why wouldn't you? You know, I live in a, a desert climate, everything's zero escaped. Well, I kind of understand, I guess. But, like, if you have a typical suburban lot and you got your one lollipop tree out in the front of it, it's a Bradford pear, why, why isn't it a Moonglow pear that grows pears? Why wouldn't you do that? I don't, I don't understand why you wouldn't replace, but I understand that not everybody would. But if most of us did, how much better off would a neighborhood be? How much more discussion would go on in our neighborhood? Everybody should talk to their neighbors. Now, if you, you're stuck living in the hood and you think your neighbors are dangerous, I, okay, but for normal people, why wouldn't you say hello to your neighbor? Why wouldn't you know your neighbor's first name? How have we fallen so far? The reason this works is it's the fundamentals. When I played football, and we had a lousy showing, even if we won. Remember, winning games where we got lucky winning and we played poorly. That was worse than playing great and losing. If you played great and you lost, 
that was actually considered valiant, right? Our football coach was like, you went to the the battlefield today and you you left it out there and we're going to work on doing things better so next time we play these guys we can beat them. But you did good. You should be proud of yourselves, right? And when we won, but we got lucky, we played a team that we should have murdered and we we got away with you know winning by three or four points, then you were in trouble. And you know what you always did, whether you lost or you won playing badly, you did things that weren't quite right, when you were really off track, fundamentals. Put the playbook away, put all the fancy stuff away, put all the special drills away, we're going to go back to the fundamentals. And every good coach I know has always done that with his team. Doesn't matter when they're playing at the pro level. When they're really faltering, go back and do the things that you did when you were in Pop Warner football. Because it works. And it works in football. It works in gardening. If everything else is going crazy, you're not getting the results you want, work on the soil. Most fundamental thing that there is. Make the soil healthy. Many things will fix themselves after that. Fundamentals. You want to live a solid, resilient lifestyle. These are the fundamentals. You start working on these things, the quality of your life will improve, and your resiliency during a downtime will go up. I promise you. It has for many members of this audience. This would be a great one for you to share, by the way. This really would. For people that think preparedness and survivalism is all a bunch of crazy crap, like they have on National Geographic, share this show with them today. Share what modern survivalism is all, all about. Modern today, current time, survival, to continue to exist, is one who specializes. One who specializes in continuing to live the modern lifestyle the most fulfilling and best way possible as a modern survivalist. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
revolution is you.